Welcome friends to Everyday Insights, where I catch up with valued colleagues and share their life learnings so we can all learn to live a little happier. This is my second podcast in my series on personal success, where I'll uncover how different people define success and how we can ever hope to attain it. Today's guest is my friend, Doug DeWeese. We met a few years ago and bonded as our two baby sons became friends during the lockdown. Doug has an interesting past growing up in Portland, but choosing to spend most of his adult life in Southeast Asia, only to return home to grow his family and become an influential member of the Portland business community. If you want to support one of his latest business ventures, ask for Taiwala Thai Tea in your local grocery store. So let's dive right in. And you'll learn about him planning a one-year adventure and ending up in East Asia for 14 years, starting a business in the green boom and getting into Oregon's legalized cannabis business, and taking care of a family member through mental illness and old age. What kind of tea are you drinking? Probably black tea. Okay. From New Seasons from the Bulka Bin. I was perusing Grace Tea's website yesterday, and they're a purveyor of fine teas. Yeah. And the different varieties of teas and their costs, uh, it was um, it was like being on safari or on some exotic trip because, you know, Chinese teas, all these different kinds, and African teas, yeah. teas from... You know Singapore. And, <laughs> yeah, that's what you mean. That I mean the descriptions yeah, outdo wine b- descriptions. You know, it's like the the pickers from the highlands in Ching Chow Chang up in the northern mountains of Taiwan. You know, cloud filled mountains of Taiwan. You know, <laughs> pick these green leaves at optimum two weeks. You know, oh, and, and then hand roll them into tiny little g- gunpowder balls. And then I'm like, this must be expensive. So I click on like learn more, and it's like you know. 80 bucks for four ounces. <laughs> have you ever seen those blooming teas and stuff yeah. too? I yeah, guess that must be the those. same idea of like hand wrapped into a certain shape and mm-hmm. very customly done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just getting the cheap part. Of it. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, uh, the, yeah. the bulk bin. I, I hear you. It out. I hear you. I had African purple tea yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know it, but it's a new cultivar uh, purposely created. And I guess it's really high in the antioxidants that purple fruit have. Hmm. Uh, but the appearance of the tea is not purple. But when you pick the leaves, I guess it has a purple hmm. thing. Yeah. Wow. Who would have known? Nice. And pr- primarily grows in one estate in Kenya or something. Hmm. Yeah. Anyways, I digress. But the tea, the, the leaves look purple? At no. Least? No, just uh, nothing about it is purple except the name? They, uh, they look purple when you pick them, when yeah. they're on the plant, yeah. but not by the time they get... That is just normal consumer. tea. It's a good way to slip in, uh, you know, some, cut that tea with the regular tea. And, uh, yeah, right. This is all no, 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 no. <laughs> the reputation's at stake. Um, let's start off with a little bit about you and um, just going to tell me a little bit about, about your background, maybe, or for, for our friends out there. Uh, My listening. That's right. Yeah. Tell, who, well, who are you, Doug? It's great to see you. <laughs> great to be here catching up with you. Um, you too, Ian. Yeah. Um, thanks for inviting me. And uh, this is my first podcast, so this is kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, only my second, I guess. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, I am a Portland native, and uh, graduated Catlin class of '90, and went to college at PSU uh, while I was working at Nordstrom's women's shoes department. <laughs> um, awesome. 
And then I matriculated up to University of Portland, where I started playing rugby. And then I matriculated up to Claremont McKenna in LA, where I graduated in Mm. 1996. Came back home for a little while, went to a career counselor because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my Bachelor of Arts degree in government. And the career counselor suggested I highlight the skills that I'm really good at and that I really enjoy doing with industries that complement those, which seemed like a good idea. Yeah. And nice and basic. Yeah. And I'm not uh, sure how that's, I know some of your next part of the story. I'm like, I'm not sure how that's going to lead in, but uh, well, (laughs) I knew at that point that whatever I was going to do, it was going to happen in San Francisco. Mm. So she was essentially helping me figure out what I was going to do in San Francisco that would complement my skill set. Yeah. Uh, and we decided together that advertising sounded like an exciting industry. Travel, sort of horizontally integrated, creativity, just sort of an exciting industry. And San Francisco is the West Coast center for that. Um, and so I moved to San Francisco. I ended up uh, getting a job in advertising. I was working for dot com when. It crashed. Yeah. 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 Was that 2002? Yeah. 2001, 2002. And uh, that was, that was interesting because uh, my commute to San Jose from uh, San Francisco was an hour and a half and overnight it became 45 minutes. Wow. What a weird way to measure. Calculate. Measure. Yeah. (laughs) But it was, it was real. Yeah. Uh, And I, you know, I went back to my landlord and said, they cut my salary, Uh, you, you know, you need to cut my rent, and he did. And nice negotiation. <laughs> yeah. It was true, you know. The employers were, if you didn't get laid off, then you were likely to, given the choice of having your salary cut or get laid off, yeah. you know. So mm-hmm. a lot of landlords lowered rents for, for tenants in the Bay Area. Um, anyways, around 2003, I'd come out of a, longish relationship and was sort of feeling ready for the next Mm. adventure Mm -hmm. and decided that I was going to travel around Asia on a shoestring budget for a year. Okay. You chose, you chose a time frame, and you said, I'm moving. That's what I was wondering is how you made this switch from North America to Asia continent. I think it started because my younger brother, Alex Mm -hmm. had recently moved to Tokyo because he wanted to learn Japanese so that he could speak with my grandma and grandpa before they passed away. Hmm. Wow. Um, and I had probably visited him, or at the very least I was talking with him while he was doing it, but I think he inspired me to go to Asia. Yeah. Um, and so I got one of those Air Trek, you know, one-year tickets where I had identified all these destinations and pre-purchased that bulk of tickets, put all my stuff in storage. And um, I think I left on my dad's birthday, November 21st, 2002. Mm. Did you plan to work while you were on this year or did you think I've got the funds to just I planned to spend about 30 bucks a day for a year and not work. I remember vividly flying into the old airport in Bangkok and I 
had one name on a piece of paper who was a friend of a friend in advertising. Steve was the name on the paper. Uh, and I arrived and, you know, just the heat. And impressive. It was, yeah, yeah. And it was raining. It was monsoon season. I also had an article from the New York Times, Frugal Traveler, Bangkok, a week in Bangkok or whatever. So I cut, that was sort of my guide initially from where I stayed to where I ate for the first couple of days. I remember feeling overwhelmed a little bit, but I just reminded myself that's what you're supposed to be feeling at this, at this moment. Um, so lean into it. Don't fight it because it's normal. Um, anyways, yeah. along that year, I, I traveled all over Asia and because Bangkok was the center of Asia, really, mm. both as a transportation hub and geographically, I, I got to know Bangkok and Thailand better than other places. It mm. was kind of hub and spoke. And the country just started to gradually grab me huh. and pull me in. Um, and by about six months, I started entertaining the thought of staying there. Uh, and so I started looking at the classified ads in the Bangkok Post for jobs in advertising. Mm. And I was backpacking in, in Vietnam with a friend from Istanbul and there was a good job ad, I think, forget if it was Ogilvy and Mather or Saatchi and Saatchi, but it was for a media planner for, I think, Dove Soap or something like that. I wasn't a media planner, but I, I did it early on, so I knew enough, mm. and I wasn't really interested in Dove Soap, but it was a good agency, and so I... Yeah, those I, are the big ones. Yeah, so I sent them um, my resume, and they got back to me and asked if I could come in for an interview. So I told them I was in Vietnam on business. <laughs> could, they, could they wait a week? And they said, sure. So I flew back to Bangkok and uh, had a suit made <laughs> and went to the interview and they offered me the job, which I declined because I still had six months left of travel, but it was this, you know, validation yeah. of, of concept that I could be there and actually continue in a career as opposed to be forced to work as an English teacher. Yeah. Which there's nothing wrong with that, but that wasn't, I wasn't willing it wasn't to do that. Wasn't your plan for your, your life. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. willing to do that. So, uh, anyways, I ended up living in Bangkok for 14 years and had a total blast. <laughs> yeah. It's a big switch from this one year trip. How much time did you see your brother during that first six months or year? Like, did that uh, end up being a big draw or, or did you kind of, you immediately found your own way and well, off? Alex was in Tokyo, Japan, and I was in Southeast Asia, so yeah. I didn't see him much, yeah. uh, maybe once. But once I lived there, we saw each other relatively often. Um, it was a six-hour direct flight to Tokyo, which is amazing, Yeah, you know, compared to Portland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, much easier. And so the time he, zone changes. Yeah, minor right, exactly, point, yeah. exactly. Um, so he would visit me, and I would visit him, and uh, that's when I we started snowboarding in Niseko, which we're going to do next week. Wow. I imagine that's, well, it's probably one of the toughest parts of changing countries, changing continents like that is, is your, 
you know, leaving family or, you know, leaving all the friends and all the connections you have and starting fresh like that, which I mean, I guess I've, I've moved cities and moved around the U S and kind of lost those connections a few times myself, but I think it's, uh, I don't know. I think you probably did it at a whole nother level. And so it's interesting to hear how you came in thinking your brother was one important touch point of you drawing you there. Um, but then you created your own, own network or how did that, how did that happen? When I think of you, Ian, I think of how you have a tight family unit and, and your closeness to your mom and, and your brothers and everything. With my family, it was a, it was a little bit different um, because my mom, you know, suffered from mental illness a lot of her life. And my dad passed away when I was only 16. And so after he was gone, her illness became, our family life became a little turbulent. Mm. Um, so <laughs> the attraction of staying near my mom, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're or, looking for a way to get out. Right. It was, it was more of a repelling uh, force. <laughs> funny. So, you know, there wasn't, because I know lots of people would rather stay close to family, which is a wonderful thing, you know? Um, uh, but or your friends case, too. I think one thing I think about you is that you, you have a lot of friends that you've had your entire life. Yeah. You, know, yeah, you make, you make connections and you, you keep them for the rest of your life, which is, uh, I'm interested to hear how you do that more too later, but, uh, they, yeah, but they, you know, they were doing their own thing and they weren't in San Francisco yeah, for starters or some, somewhere, but, um, yeah. anyways, I, I felt pretty footloose and fancy free. Um, it was really nice having my brother close by, uh, and I did have friends from the States, um, my closest ones, they all came to visit. Visit occasionally. Sometimes yeah. more than once. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and my mom came out um, once when I, I did an executive MBA program there. Mm -hmm. um, it was a local university in partnership with um, Kellogg and Wharton. Mm. And so my mom came out for the graduation ceremony, Thai graduation ceremony. Uh I received the diploma from one of the princesses. Awesome. Yeah, I had to walk, do the proper walk and not look in the eyes and, you know, all this bizarre formality. Yeah. Um, that reminded me of one question I wanted to ask about Thai culture. So I know you moved on from there to working with some different kinds of businesses. One of them was a pet uh, mm -hmm. pet supply business, kind mm -hmm. of like pet technology that stuff. That was my wife's company, Pet, oh, okay. um, pet Protect. Yeah. But I helped her... Uh, get it started. What are the biggest cultural differences you saw between, you know, living there, living here? Particularly in business, um, you know, the, the U S corporate culture is sort of that vaunted Jack Welch efficiency, uh, hit your goals, take initiative. Uh, Asia is very different than that. It's sort of a hierarchical, uh, culture, at least Thailand, but I think other Asian cultures are too, Yeah, where you have deference to your boss and you do what you're told. Uh, and if you're not told to do something, you probably are not going to spend a lot of energy to come up with, you know, a better idea. Mm. Um, and then there's something called losing face, which is basically you don't want to put anyone on the spot and embarrass them. That's a big no-no mm. uh, in, I think, Asian cultures, definitely in Thailand. So hmm. it was interesting 
uh, and challenging, and I had to learn how to motivate Thai employees, uh, particularly this was a, a medical device company called Pacific Medical. Um, yeah, was that your first job then out of grad well, school there? Or what, yeah, how did that um, flow go? My first job after grad school was a company called Vector Technology, and we were basically a franchise of a Istanbul business that did GPS tracking, uh, telematics for trucking fleets. Mm. Uh, so I did that for five, five years, I think. And then I started a new business called Pacific Medical. And okay. that was selling orthodontic equipment that was manufactured in McMinnville, Oregon, about 45 minutes from here. A connection you had or just random no. that it was happened to be <laughs> Oregon stuff? I happened to be flying home from Bangkok in the winter, uh, maybe... 2006 or seven when there was a big ice storm mm -hmm. and our plane PDX was shut. So our plane was diverted to SFO and they put us in hotels and told us to come back the next day at 5 AM in case a window of flight opened up and they could get us back to Portland. And the only thing that was open at SFO at 5 AM was the bar. So I sat next to the president and CEO of uh, World Class Technology, which is the manufacturer of these orthodontic products. Hmm. And we started talking. And one thing you'll notice in Bangkok is how many dental clinics there are. Uh, Thais are just very focused on their aesthetics. Uh, and so I shared this with Rolf, the, uh, the owner. And um, fast forward, uh, I opened a business around that. Yeah, amazing. So. so then you were telling the story initially of motivating your team. Yeah. So yeah. you can't be too direct like Americans are with Asians and with Thais. And so in order to get a, a Thai employee to achieve an objective, I would have to sort of build a framework around the objective without actually saying what it is mm. so that they could identify what the objective is on their own, yeah. claim it as their own, and then I would encourage them to go get it. And it was kind of a roundabout way of doing things, but it was a lot more effective than me saying, here's your sales target, this is what you got to do, or just giving them an objective and then letting them use their toolkit to do it. Yeah. That's yeah, the sales target thing seems like an interesting example, or maybe you can walk me through one of, of how that would happen. But the sales target being that hey, you gotta go sell X, go figure it out. Go, you know, right. figure out what you need to do to do it and let me know if I can help eliminate barriers. Right. But uh, so instead of doing that, yeah, would you have a good example of, of how you did this motivation? It it really depended on the task, but it would just be like, or we really need to get this done so that we can put it put the advertisement in the magazine. We want the doctors at the trade show to know about this promotion. What do you think the right strategy is? Yeah. Uh, and so then, that does sound empowering. Like you're right. trying, you're, to, you're, you're trying to, to come up with yeah. the idea of what, what to yeah. do next. Um, and then, you know, you help guide them to it. So when you empower them like that, they might come up with an idea you don't like. Mm -hmm. How do people handle, or have you found even just throughout your career, you know, people handling that rejection. I think life's about building relationships, even at work. So, uh, you do it constructively, you know, and you, d you talk about it and you talk about your reasons for it. And, uh, if the other person's reasonable, then hopefully you guys arrive at the, the same conclusion. Yeah. That's most of your time, uh, in Thailand. And then you decided to come 
come back to the U.S. So yeah. I was dating B, who's my my wife, and I was starting to realize that maybe we'd get married. And I always thought in my mind that when it was time to start a family, that would be in Portland. Mm. The draw of, of home to you or something. The draw of home, yeah. yeah. Yeah, childhood memories. And just Portland being such a incredible town and such a healthy place to live. So I started strategizing on how to get home, you know, running. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean running? Well, running towards get the, get, get there fast? Or no, <laughs> no, no. Like hit the ground running. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Without losing, uh, yeah. losing Not your career. Not like running out of town. <laughs> <laughs> that was, a, that was Cambodia. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, how to hit the ground running. Um, so that was uh, another exciting time, you know. And again, it was about place, uh, choosing a place and then figuring out the strategy to get there hmm. and achieve your objectives, be successful. Yeah. Uh, it was the same thing with Bangkok. It was the same thing with San Francisco. Same thing coming home to Portland. Yeah. So, uh, can't remember how the idea came up, but a friend I've known since uh, lower school, I think, uh, mentioned cannabis, and cannabis was about to go legal in the U.S. So I started coming up with a business strategy with these three guys in Portland. I was still in Bangkok, but we would do, you know, videos and we had conference calls with Stone Reeve corporate lawyers mm. and like I was doing it all from from Bangkok, but it got to the point where I felt comfortable moving back to Portland on my own that I would have enough of a start, enough of a direction that if I moved back home, I could try and make it real. It wasn't anything yet. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have an investor or anything yet. No, like it wasn't, we had a yeah. business plan, but it wasn't much. Um, and so I flew back in, uh, I think September, 2016, I flew directly to LA for a, a big cannabis trade show. And I uh, met up with the three guys from Portland. Um, I think we crashed at that time. My brother was in LA. So we crashed at his place. And for the next three years, I worked on that company while B stayed in Bangkok. Mm. She stayed because she had her pet project company yeah. that was doing well and her friends and her gym and her life. And I didn't have a whole lot in Portland. Uh, and I was so f laser focused on trying to get the company Rare Air off the ground. And then on top of that, B started her green card application. And the, the way we did it required her to be out of the country mm. while I was in the country. Got married despite being separated for three years. Yeah. Yeah, that's not easy. Big decision. And it big was. decision for her, too, to make that transition it between co countries and everything. It yeah, was. I'm sure it's been challenging. I, th I think she probably had grave doubts that we would get back together when yeah. I left for Portland to, to work on the cannabis business. <laughs> but uh, we talked on FaceTime. The, the time zone was almost opposite. So my morning, her evening, 
her morning, my evening. Yeah. So we talked twice a day on FaceTime. And then we met in Italy uh, once. Uh, we met in, I flew to Bangkok, you know, like once a year, mm -hmm. maybe a couple other times. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was hard. Yeah. I'm sure that was nice to end that, that period <laughs> as well. So overall, all the time you've been around here, like what do you consider your biggest success or biggest successes? When I say that, what, what comes to mind first? I guess living and working in different places around the world, places, um, places where I wanted to explore. Yeah. Was that a childhood dream kind of? No, no, not really. When I left for backpacking in Asia, I did not intend to stay 14 years in Thailand. Yeah. Um, I almost have to reflect back on things to, to try and look for a pattern. But the, the obvious pattern in my life was moving to live somewhere that appealed to me, whether it was San Francisco or Bangkok or Portland. And then the challenge that followed that move in order to be successful, which, you know, I think means f being fulfilled. So when I decided I was going to move to any of those places, I really didn't have a lead on anything or uh, anything secure. And that required a laser-like focus on, what, on the project at hand. So in San Francisco, it was start a career in advertising. In Bangkok, it was find a good job that would lead to better opportunities. Avoid being an English teacher, right? But, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that, that led somewhere. Uh, and then in Portland, it was start this company, Rare Air. And there's a thrill when you have that clarity and focus and, and there's nothing else you've got to accomplish and there's no strings attached and you're your own person. Mm -hmm. And so that being able to have achieved something in San Francisco, in Bangkok, in Portland, for me, that's a one form of success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned the idea of, uh, Success meaning fulfillment. What what does that what does it mean to be fulfilled? Or how do you how do you get yeah. fulfillment? I think the the older you get, the more it distills down to having loving relationships. Um, and the younger you are in your career, the more it is about job titles and achievements and you know some sort of external measure or external. I, uh, I think so. Approval of of success to a certain degree. You want to get that promotion when the other people around are doing it. You want to, you know, nail that presentation and you want to show that you've got the goods, right? So you guys came here and you, you had a, a baby, you have a, a three-year-old and yeah. uh, you mentioned family. That as That is a, a, success. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's fulfillment. Um, but uh, relationships take work. Yeah. Always, I think, take work. Uh, you have to invest in them your time and your effort. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like growing a plant or something. And as you know, with a three-year-old, that's a lot of work, uh, loving work, but it's a lot of work. But that's been amazing. I mean, you know, seeing him grow up and seeing Ian Jr. grow up, it's it's a one-of-a-kind experience. Yeah, you said how, you know, over time you've felt that shift of titles and you know, doing the right presentation to being a more of a family-oriented success feel how does that or, or at least now I, I don't know it's really hard to say i mean there's part of me that still 
wants other people to recognize that I've got, you know, accomplishments. Yeah. I don't know if that ends except maybe in hospice or something. <laughs> but at the same time, though, I, I think with age does come wisdom. You see what your better self can be and you work towards it. Hmm. And it's uh, hard to change, but that's not a reason not to try. Yeah. It's yep. a work in progress, you know. <laughs> For me, getting bored is a problem. When I get bored, I lose focus. And... I've always put myself in a situation where I'm always learning. When I stop learning, I get bored. And when I get bored, I'm not productive. Mm -hmm. So what do you, yeah, what have you taken up? You know, your, your quests for learning, how has that flowed over the last, I don't know, five years or so? Well, when I came back to Portland with Rare Air, I really had to raise, in, in starting the business, I had to bring my entrepreneurialism to a higher level in order to raise three million bucks. I had to elevate my fundraising and I had to elevate my financial modeling to build a business case for people to invest in my vision. Mm. I hired people uh, to help me learn how to do that at that level, you know, Excel spreadsheets and present value discounting and cash flow waterfalls and debt and senior debt and junior debt and all these things which I've learned uh, in the last five years have been very exciting for me to understand and yeah. use. Uh, and uh, fundraising strategies and cohorts and pitches and psychology behind it has been exciting for me. I feel like it's the natural evolution of my career. And it all happened because I decided to come back to Portland. Some people would think about going to business school or would think a lot of those things you just mentioned, maybe you should have learned or they should learn in school. How is it different, you know, things you're learning in real life or on the job in, you know, as we grow older, um, than what you learn through school? Mm -hmm. Well, my undergrad <clears throat> is a liberal arts education, so I, I suppose the arguments I learned how to think, uh, and I, I focused on government, so uh, I learned about government. Um, the executive MBA uh, was part-time. So it was uh, Wednesday evening and all day Saturday for two years. And you get sort of a high-level managerial understanding of the topics taught in business school. Yeah. But you don't go in deep. Mm -hmm. The idea being that you would have employees that would actually do the books, but you better know how to read the books, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Um, and why you need to do them or what's, exactly. you know, what's the value that they're providing. What's the value and how to spot problems in the books or mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So all of that was really good for me. Executive MBA, they want you to have eight years work experience before you start so that you have real life business perspective that you can apply to what you're learning in the classroom. And so it was, it was good. It was really good. But the skills I needed for Rare Air required more detail than I had learned in school. Mm. Um, but it wasn't 
because there was any omission or anything like that. I knew. Yeah, I'm not I, trying to place blame more. Yeah. Show the value of learning continuously. It helped bring me to a situation where I knew what needed to be done and I knew how to reach out to people who knew how to do those things and help me do them. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I didn't really need to learn how to do giant spreadsheets and modeling, but I wanted to. So I got into the weeds a lot. No, but it all built upon itself to, to get me to where I was with Rare Air. And one thing I'll do if I'm in a situation, if, if I can identify an area of weakness or an area that I can't do, then I'll go shine a light on that and try and turn that into a strength. So it was a real learning experience um, for that company. And it was great, even though it didn't work out in the end. Yeah, I'm interested to hear the wind down process. That's one side of success is that is failure or is just the change, things moving on or like yeah. whether it's a failure or not or a success or not. That's the kind of things we're evaluating in ourselves and, and evaluating in our, our lives. And it's difficult to do. Yeah, the life is is definitely challenging. You know, it's hard to stay even keeled. I remember when I was starting to think about winding down, I was starting to feel more anxiety than I normally <laughs> felt on a daily basis. B was, you know, in Thailand and... And planning to come at soon at that point? So. Or like what you I might think have been, so. It always happens at the same time. There was just stuff. a lot of balls in the air, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, work was getting a little stressful and, and uh, yeah, so it's important to observe yourself and, and make sure that you're doing okay too, yeah. you know? So what happened with that and how did it, how do you feel about it now? What's the, you know, what's the uh, learning we can take from doing that startup business, which yeah. I think is exciting for a lot of people. And then it is exciting. You know, yeah. You feel some great success getting that started up and then it changes over time. In the case of Rare Air, the Oregon cannabis industry between 2016 and 2019 had so many convulsions and was roiled so many times by different events. Uh, by 2019, the big story was the overwhelming number of producer licenses, of growers, mm -hmm. resulting in a massive glut. And so the price of cannabis was almost nothing. And the hmm. OLCC temporarily suspended issuing new grower licenses. And so we were in line to receive ours. And we were also in line to start construction on a $2 million facility in Boring, Oregon. And so you can't build a facility if you, if you don't have if a license to, grow, to do yeah. anything. Yeah. But in retrospect, I realized that at the, in the end, our business model was underfunded. And if I were to do it over again, rather than just decide, okay, I don't need three million, I need 10 million to do this. And our, our model was to be vertically integrated. I think I would have on, on a second chance I would have focused on building a brand, rare air, so cannabis based on heirloom and land race seeds and strains, original strains, pre-hybrid and pre all the, the craziness, built a just an incredible story about that and outsourced the growing, the distribution, mm. the processing, all of it. Not done the vertical integration. Yeah. I mean. yeah. Just built a brand. And no one's 
done that yet about heirloom land race. Mm-hmm. I still think it's a good opportunity. But it was, it was, uh, it was such an adventure. I mean, two good stories. Uh, one is I wanted to build a brand for Rare Air, and I came from the advertising industry. Mm-hmm. So I knew that you could find young creatives who sometimes would work for free uh, to be part of something cool. So I cold called Wyden Kennedy and young lady there is like, well, she said, I do know one guy who's interested in cannabis or whatever. I'll share your idea with him. And so this creative director got in touch with me and uh, I said, you know, I'm creating this cool brand, Land Race Heirloom. We've got a piece of land. And uh, he's like, I'd love to. <laughs> so we had a creative director from Wyden Kennedy, you know, one of the top agencies in the creative agency in the world, work for us for free. Wow. And then a, another exciting story, which was bad, our grower, who is a business partner, a minority business partner uh, in terms of his ownership. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of the heirloom and land race uh, came from him originally. Um, and he had a bunch of seeds that he had collected over the years of these heirloom and land race. What is that second part? Land race? Land race. It just yeah. um, me- means indigenous. Hmm. So if you go to the island of Kochang in Thailand, herb grows indigenously, natively, and it's Kochang seeds. Hmm. Uh, if you go to the Rio Negro in Colombia River, um, you know, there's yeah. Rio Negro land race herb. Okay. Okay, um, and then heirloom, you you know. So, um, I guess you could define it though for us. Uh, like, well, just heirloom is um, kind of original strains yeah. before they've been hybridized. Yeah, because um, I I feel like heirloom tomatoes were one of the first things that came out. Yes, so it's like right. Like organic was originally it didn't really mean anything. Then the USDA came in and said, "Oh, organic means this specific mm-hmm. kind of thing," and some people get upset about that. Mm-hmm. I feel like heirloom is, heirloom might be another one of those terms that's uh, not I, controlled. I, is, it, I, is what it really means. I I think that the the theory is that heirloom has have their own characteristics mm. that you don't really get in mass marketed right produce anymore. Yeah, that um, makes sense. So whether or not that's true, but I think that's <laughs> marketing the theory. term at least. Yes. I think yeah. that's the theory. All right. So um, heirloom. Anyways, um, yeah. So we had hired this investment coach or a fundraising coach um, to help us, and so we were meeting at a coffee shop to to build a pitch for investors. And I remember a moment where the coach uh, were telling about our heirloom land race idea, and the coach turned to Mike and was like you are really the key of this story of this brand. It is you. The grower. The grower. Yeah. And I, I turned and I was like, oh man, he's going to really think that he's the key. Yeah. And, and, the and company. Then, yeah. And Struggles sure with enough, the power change there. Sure yeah. enough, uh, he came back and he told me that he was going to need a lot bigger ownership of the company. Uh, and the truth is you can get these seeds anywhere and you can find People, this, there's already Everyone, people growing. Everyone's it, yeah. an incredible grower. Yeah. Right. But it was just as soon as this dumbass coach said that, I wanted to punch the coach. Yeah. You know, I was like, and I knew this, this, this uh, journalist guy. I was like, I mean, this guy doesn't know shit. Uh, anyways um so we had weeks of intense negotiations 
another aspect of the cannabis industry was nobody really has a business background, but they're all experts, right? It was the green rush. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the grower was just asking for all this crazy stuff, you know, and I gave more a little bit, but you know, it just wasn't realistic. Hmm. Um, and so that was just sort of another nail in the coffin at the time. I gave him back his uh, investment. He gave me all the seed bank. Um, and yeah, that was that. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel about it all now? How, how would you rate it on a scale of one to 10 for success, you know, in your life? Was this uh, the fact that you went off and did this big project? Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting, you know, it, it ended in failure in the sense that the company didn't get started. However, it allowed me to come to Portland after being gone for 25 years and hit the ground running, getting to know lawyers, getting to know consultants, getting to know investors, going to trade shows. Um, and for three years, I was able to do that. Yeah. Never a moment of, you know, sitting at home in a rainy day, wondering, you know, feeling the anxiety of, did I make the right decision or what am I going to do next? So in that sense, it was perfect. It led to where I am today. Yeah. Like a good spot. Yeah. Awesome. Maybe we could talk a little bit about how relationships have influenced you through those processes, uh, how they shape our path to success. So who are the people along the way, either through maybe this Oregon timeframe or through the Thailand timeframe? How did people come in and out of your life that helped you to feel success? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, as I said, I was 16 when my dad died. So when he died, my one of my best friend's fathers stepped into the void the same day, actually, and said, you know, I'm going to, I'll be your, your new dad, yeah. you know, wow. not take over for your dad, but, you know, I'm here for you. Yeah, that's very um, really nice. And so, you know, I think I've always been attracted to like older men in terms of their, the wisdom and, and just the friendship that they can bring. And I, I forgot to mention when my dad died and I was 16, he was 77. Mm. So that that's also why older guys, I mean, that was my dad. He was yeah, an older very guy. Old. Yeah. So in business, I think it's very important to find mentors, people who can teach you what they know and teach you how to avoid mistakes, mm -hmm. share what they've gained through their hard work uh, so that you can be good at what you do. Um, and I've been lucky from time to time to have people like that. How do you find a mentor? I think that's, that's what been a challenge for me in life or mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. finding those people, mm -hmm. switching it from being a person you've met to, oh, I'm going to consider you a mentor. Yeah. Obviously there has to be chemistry. There has to be a connection and then there has to be relationship building. Um, and a mentor doesn't need to be someone you see every week. A mentor could be someone you check in with once a month, mm -hmm. but that when you have questions, you can go to them for advice. Yeah. Do you find it valuable for that to be like a formalized relationship or do you just think of it as there's just people Friendship. and I think of them as, as someone I'm looking yeah, up to. Exactly. Yeah. And I think almost looking up to is, you know, the keywords mentor, but it's just someone I look up to and I, and I trust mm -hmm. and I've, who's 
advice I value. What's the flip side of that? Are there relationships that have been detractors or how do you identify someone that is like negative towards your, your feeling of success or, or to you getting to the next level of success when you're doing something? I can't think of anyone that was adversarial or, or negative like that. I can think of being in a work situation or any relationship situation that's not going anywhere, mm. right? Or it's unsatisfying. And then inertia sits in. It's hard to make a change. And so you end up treading water or maintaining that less than ideal situation. It's more your personal demon than the uh, for, than an for, external relationship. That, yeah, that, for, that's and, and pe- yeah. You know, I've done it and I think other people do it. You can do it for a long time, mm. years sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's more in my experience than, than having someone who's keeping me down or something yeah, like some that. sort of toxic personality. I've seen that. I mean, I, I worked for a dot-com in uh, San Francisco for about six months. Mm-hmm. It was a toxic sort of uh, Wall Street trading floor, hyper-aggressive, four young guys, you know, ringing the cowbell when they close a deal. And, you know, it's just like a really a dot-com San Francisco <laughs> cliche. <laughs> and uh, I lasted a couple of months uh, and then I quit. Yeah. I was like, man, this this will this kind of stress will give you cancer. Yeah, not the right culture for you, <laughs> or for maybe for anyone. <laughs> so, yeah, recently your mom moved into a, you moved her to a new memory care facility, and I was interested in just how that whole process. I mean, I think that's something we all have to deal with is our loved ones getting older mm-hmm. and you know taking care of them, mm-hmm. and it's really a super big challenge for people. Mm-hmm. You've uh, learned along the way. Because my mom has struggled with mental illness, we've been dealing with this for a long time. Probably 15, 16 years ago was when she left sort of living independently and moved to assisted care living facility. Mm -hmm. I was in Bangkok and I got a call in the middle of the night and it was a social worker, a state social worker in Oregon saying that my mom had been picked up in the lobby of a downtown hotel. She was sleeping on the couch and um, she was at the Good Samaritan psychiatric ward. And did I know? And I was like, obviously not. You know, you called me at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning. I, um, and he's like, well, you know, this isn't the first time. I mean, we, we knew she was struggling, but this isn't the first time and uh, either you or, you know, a family member needs to come and take control of her situation or the state will do it. You, you don't want that. Mm. Uh, and he's like, I can give you the name of an elder care law attorney and uh, she can help guide you through the process. So there are resources out there for getting old and the challenges of involved with that, whether it's mental health or health or anything else, there are a lot of resources. So we hired an elder care law attorney. She told us that we would need to file for a health care guardian. So a guardian is someone who has legal authority to make health care decisions for someone else. Mm-hmm. So she did that for us, and we interviewed guardians and selected one. Just someone local, or uh-huh. uh, what does that mean? Like a, they're not they're not related, or could they be someone related? Uh, they could be, but in our case, we are not trained to be guardians, mm-hmm. nor are we trained to deal with mentally ill people. 
So out of the goodness of our heart, if we try and take care of my mom, we're making our own lives miserable and we're likely preventing her from getting the best help she can get. Mm -hmm. Uh, So through the goodness of son's hearts, you're actually screwing everyone over. (laughs) Uh, So the guardian was a real caretaker, not just making decisions. Not a caretaker, just a a healthcare decision maker. Wow. Okay. Uh, So if you know, medicine, she would have to approve it. Um, you know, hospital, she would go make sure that everything's okay. Um, nice. So we, we hired a, a guardian. Uh, and then the question was, where is she going to live? So we, my brother and I went and looked at a bunch of assisted care living facilities around town. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we chose Roschnitzer Manor in Raleigh Hills. It's a Jewish place. So you have for-profit and nonprofit facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we ended up going with a, a religious one. It, they seemed to have their hearts in the right place at that time. And uh, so she moved in there. And so now she's in a community with a nurse station where she can eat on her own, you know, and they provide support. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a guardian in place who, if anything happens, the guardian steps in and, Alex and I can just be her sons. Yeah. We don't have to deal with the stress of it. Just and you were both abroad still at that point? or? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Although my brother at some point came back to LA, so he was closer. Yeah. But the guardian does seem important in that case for sure to have yeah. someone who's can make a, a decision within a, a few minutes That's, or within an hour. Yeah. And just oversee my mom's medical because she couldn't do it on her own. Yeah. The facility has, it's a safe facility and there's nurses, but my mom wouldn't say it's time for my psychiatrist appointment or I need to see a psychiatrist, right? And take your own medication. Most mentally ill people don't think they're ill. They try and convince you it's real. It's real, right? (laughs) And so someone's got to administer that medicine. Yeah. um, So yeah, uh, it's... It's uh, not easy growing old, um, but we've been lucky that we've found the right folks to help and that we can afford it. I kind of shudder to think about growing old in this country if you don't have the means to, to afford it. These places can be pretty spendy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, last week we moved her to Touchmark, um, which is a for-profit old folks project. And the memory care. And there we hired um, a guy named Peter Wilhelm, whose job it is, is to help help you select a new memory care facility. Mm. So he's a broker, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. So we told him we need it to be not too far from our home. It's got to look great. You know, it's got to be a greenhouse model where the rooms are on the outside and they look into this common area. And he's like, here's a list of four names that I think you'll be really happy with any word on how that transition goes for her. And I her. mean, you know, knock on wood, but uh, it seems to be going really well. The yeah. level because she was at assisted care, mm-hmm. which isn't much assistance, and so now she's in memory care where everything is done. That everything is that you know, bathing and getting in bed and socializing mm-hmm. and laundry. So it's sort of a revelation. Yeah, you know. 
well, good luck to her and, and you guys too. Hopefully it turns out great. So yeah, I mentioned earlier this idea that one thing I noticed you being particularly good at is you make these relationships, you have friends, you keep them over a long period of time and that you're still friends with some of the same people you do from Catelyn Gable or from, you know, different points in your life. How do you manage that? What, how do you keep in touch with these people? Or I find in my own life and what I'll go through in this podcast, and I've met um, a lot of amazing people throughout my life of, from lots of different places, but I'm not so great at keeping in touch with all of them. And as part of the value of this is hopefully I'll, I'll get to uh, spend more time with everybody. I think it, it, yeah. it just takes a phone call. Yeah. You know, it just takes making contact every couple months. That's it. Yeah. You so know? no formal process for you or anything, or do you have a... No, but it's important to me, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and, and I do consider these, these are people I like, you know, and I feel are important in my life that I'm better for having them in my life. So uh, in that sense, the most important thing you can do is to say hi once in a while. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. What about the double-sidedness of that? People could call you or you could call them. Well, <laughs> I think you, you pointed out already that seems to be a strength of mine. Yeah. Reaching out. Yeah. So or, you don't feel bad. Like you if know, you're the one doing the work on all that stuff, no, I'm going to make the phone calls. I don't. It it's makes valuable me happy. to me. I feel the benefit from doing that. Yeah. It's self-sustaining activity. Yeah. Do you set aside time on your calendar? Do you have any formalization to that kind of thing? Or are you no. just like, oh, I'm, I got a few moments here. Let me call up. Suddenly I'm Jack. feeling chatty. Yeah. You know, and I'll say, well, I'll give Ryan a call or, you know, Bill or whomever. Yeah. It just takes reaching out. There's no shortcut or substitute from just checking in. Yeah. What about finding partners? I think that's an interesting topic. There's two ways, two ways you could take that question, whichever one feels better for you. So one is how do we find a good relationship? You know, you found B through all that, all that time out in, in Thailand and you, you said, oh, this is the one for me. I'm going to, you know, do this difficult three-year relationship from afar. Or then like with Rare Air, you found business partners there and with the other, other business now and in the past, you're selecting out these business partners and how do you choose what's, what's going to be a successful relationship there versus a, a difficult one? In both <laughs> cases, partnerships are tough. <laughs> Just relationships are hard. In, in the business case, if you can survive without having partners or if you can be successful without having partners, at least in the sense of check signing partners and corporate paper partners and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have ultimate say. Partnerships often end up not working because situations change. So yeah, sometimes it can be simpler not having partners. Mm. But as you pointed out, I've always had them. But I feel like as I've gain more and more experience. Um, <laughs> Try to do know. more with less? Yeah, a little bit. You know, you can attract smart people around you without necessarily giving up control of, of the company. And with regards to relationships, well, I got married, I was 45. So that tells you, <laughs> that <laughs> so you, says something. I'm not sure what. You had a lot of experience figuring it out. I'm sort of a tortoise <laughs> in that sense. I, I don't know. In my case, I felt more ready to settle down to a single person, to being responsible and more selfless, less selfish mm-hmm. around the age of 45. Uh, before that, you know, I just 
the idea of committing your everything to one person, it was like, oh, I'm not ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, about that time where I felt more ready to make that sort of commitment um, was, you know, I was with B. Um, We were having a really good time and very compatible. So it seemed like the natural evolution of, of the relationship. Having said that, B and I dated 10 years before we got married. Wow, yeah. So you knew her pretty well by that point. For me, it was just a confluence of different things, external, internal, life, moving. It came down to, okay, you have to make a decision now. Your story is typical and atypical, right? We all go through these same kind of life issues and everyone does it a little bit differently. Um, so it's just fun to hear about those stories and, mm-hmm. and learn from them and mm-hmm. we can all make our own choices, mm-hmm. uh, with those, those ideas in mind. That's Thanks a ton adventure. for sharing yours today and, uh, best of luck. Yeah. Uh, thank, with your thanks trip for having up. me on. And, uh, this has been fun. Yeah. Cool. Thanks Doug. All right. That's it for today. Thanks a ton for listening. Don't forget to like, and subscribe. I hope you learned something and I'll see you next time, friends.